Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features the Society for Chamber Music in Rochester. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. My name is Dr. Rosanna Moore, and as always, I am your host. Today, my partner in crime is the wonderful Dr. Blair Kerner. Hello, my dear. How are you? I am well. Thanks for asking. Now, today, we have a couple of slightly different guests from what we normally have on the podcast. Instead of a preformed group or a composer, we actually have the Society for Chamber Music in Rochester who are uh, chamber music presenters. The Society for Chamber Music in Rochester is described as being always a source of imaginative and engaging programming. And that was from David Raymond in the City newspaper. Now, I know these two wonderful people very well. Uh, it is Eric Baer and Juliana Athade, as they are two colleagues of mine with the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. And they are the principal oboe and concert mistress, respectively. So today we're going to be talking about all the fun things of juggling a million jobs at once and being primarily an orchestral musician, but with a side hustle of chamber music promoting. So welcome, Eric and Juliana. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. I feel a little outnumbered because you're a doctor, Blair's a doctor, Eric's a doctor, <laughs> and I'm just a violinist. Three doctors and a concept master. So. <laughs> I also love it. We have the demographics of two immigrants and two Americans as well. That's always a good thing. <laughs> so to get started with the questions today, uh, can you talk briefly about how and why the Society for Chamber Music in Rochester started and how you became the co-artistic director? That's a great question and a very long history. I think we're really proud that uh, we're part of an organization that's been around for 44 years. So it's the longest, oldest uh, chamber music society group in Rochester in the area. Um, it's one of the oldest in the country. And I think it stems basically from the love of chamber music and music in general that has been fostered in Rochester from way back when you think of George Eastman and all the things he did to set up the university, specifically the music school, his love of music. Um, and so out of that love of music in the community, there was a need, I guess, 44 years ago. Uh, Richard Luby was one of the founders and they decided they wanted to kind of put together the members of the Rochester Philharmonic and the wonderful faculty of the Eastman School of Music and find a way for all of them to play together on a series. Um, it started off very informally, very casually, people sitting on the floor of George Eastman's big room at his mansion. That was one of the first meeting places where they'd play and, and listen to each other. 
a wonderful group of board uh, community people sprung up to help help keep it going and a few are still around doing incredible work on our board so it's been going on for a long time some have been from the very very beginning and it's been a treat for Juliana and I right now during this uh, crazy pandemic to look back at the history and look at the concerts and uh, with the idea of thinking well we should make sure that people are aware of what's happened and it's really been a it's been a humbling experience seeing how many wonderful concerts the level of artists that have come through from David Zimmerman conducting to Yo-Yo Ma making a guest appearance all the way through to now mm. um, so we really feel like we're just you know we're, we're just holding on to this you know little beautiful thing and trying to shepherd it along right now through this time and uh, there seems to still be a lot of enjoyment in the community for people supporting the RPO musicians and Eastman faculty getting together. I think more than ever now, uh, there's a great onus on local. You know, in South Africa, we'd say local is lekker, mm. and that means local is, yeah. tastes really good. So I think <laughs> that's something that we really love. Um, so when you introduce this, you know, we're presenting organization, and effectively we're not because we get contacted by a lot of groups saying, oh, we'd love to come to Rochester. And we say, we'd love you to as well, but that's not really our mission. Our mission is to focus on our community and our amazing musicians. And right, mm -hmm. so what a treat to have a, a smallish town like Rochester and have this world-class um, educational institution and orchestra that plays in the hall of the building. It's an incredible thing that really is nowhere else in the country. Um, so I think we're very lucky. We've got a great pool to pull from here in Rochester. We bring in a few outside people now and again, especially if they're soloing with the RPO or perhaps coming to do a guest mm -hmm. teaching week, friends of ours. So uh, it's it's very much a local, wonderful, unique thing that's been around a long time and we're just trying not to mess it up, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you both get started with your organization? Did you start off as performers and then decide to go to the artistic director and what made you decide to make that step? So I came to the RPO in 2005, right after um, finishing grad school. And uh, right away, I was embraced by the society. Um, at the time, the artistic directors were Joe Werner, who's uh, the keyboardist with the RPO and former personnel manager, and also Stefan Royce, who was our former principal cellist. And so before I even started with the orchestra, they said, okay, we, you know, we have this chamber series and we want you to come play. And I thought, oh, that's great. And what a phenomenal experience it was. It was such a warm group of audience members. Of course, there was a lot of overlap with people that are fans of the Chamber Society and fans of the RPO. So I just felt this warm embrace being a newcomer in this city. Um, and then it was really probably how many years later, 10 years later mm -hmm. that they approached us. So yeah, it was, it was almost 10 years into my time here in Rochester and they approached us. Um, we knew that Joe and Stefan were stepping down after a really successful long tenure. And we were excited when they reached out. I, I think we both felt like, is this, could we do this? Like, could we add this to our plate? And we had a lot of ideas, but we didn't know if it would be kind of what they were envisioning. Um, and I remember we met with Don Hunsberger, illustrious um, former Eastman Wind Ensemble director, and uh, Linda Gillum, who's a uh, president of our board. And it was just a casual discussion and we kind of shared what our ideas would be moving forward. And um, we thought it went well, but you know, you never know with these things. And when they called and said, okay, we want it to be you guys, we thought, oh, 
oh my gosh. So here we are. Um, and it feels like we haven't run out of ideas yet. So that's what makes us feel like that's great. We should keep going with it. <laughs> and interestingly, that when we when we debriefed with Joe and Stefan and uh, it was great, we said, Well, you guys have done so well. What did you find difficult about the job? And they were so open and candid, generous with their time. They said, really at the end of the day, you, you end up getting the programming ends up getting difficult. You know, you sort of run they did thirteen years and I think perhaps sometimes with these things, like if somebody could get given a break, like if they had a sabbatical, maybe refreshed, come back, it would have been, they would have felt energized again. As you know, right, there's so much that happens behind the scenes and there's so many sort of demands and squeaky wheels you've got to make sure are okay. And so there are a lot of complex things and the programming side of it, which actually should be the most fun, can eventually be the hard thing that pulls you down. But I still say that the easiest part of the job is putting on the concert, having the concert, playing in the yeah. concerts. That's really wonderful. And I think, um, you know, whenever we talk to teachers or, you know, priests, you know, they always say the actual performing of your responsibility is always the fun part. It's all the financial meetings, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, this is something we mention a lot on this podcast. We've mentioned with pretty much everyone we've spoken to is when you go through music college or university, you're not really given the skills to learn how to do all the admin. You don't realize that 50% of your work is administration based, which of course, if you go to Eastman, you are. You I, that is true. The ALP, we, we do love ALP and IML. That's, and that is the arts leadership program. Shout out, <laughs> Jay Rachel Roberts. Right. So going back to the uh, programming, um, it says in your mission that you are interested in and pursue all styles of music and time periods and so forth. So could you give us a sample of what a person could expect when they came to a concert? What would be like your average, you know, concert repertoire that you would try to aim for? It's, it's a fairly simple and I think it's not any revolutionary concept that we want to lure people in with the meat and potatoes that they're going to love. We bring them in with the bronze and then we <laughs> blow them away with something they've never heard before and so the trick is really in finding not shoehorning pieces in that you think well we we should be doing this we have to do this it's a great piece no one knows it all we, we're pushing an agenda but finding the right piece that will pay with maybe a more familiar work on the um mm. in the genre i mean it's not something that's revolutionary i think simon rattle did it very effectively when he went to berlin in the early days where he would do beethoven nine with like tan dun and for the audiences there, they, they would come for the Beethoven, but they're talking about mm -hmm. the other yeah. piece afterwards, right? And that's always the mm -hmm. best. When we hear people come up to us afterwards and go, yeah, yeah, Brahms Sextet is great. But whoa, that, that Leclerc Sonata, holy moly, that's cool. So that's what we're trying to do. And I think we, we've tried to do that with, you know, some of the initiatives that were started even before we were there, the composition competition, right? Which every mm -hmm. year it changes. It's a New York State competition that... One year will be college and one year will be high school. Mm -hmm. And we have met some incredible composers. Blair actually played on one of them. And so what I love about that is like, okay, so now as Blair's career just keeps going and going, she will be in contact in a circle with Harry and Harry's career is yeah. doing well. Yeah. And what oh, happens yeah. one day mm -hmm. if some lovely person comes to Blair and says, okay, I'm gonna, I want to commission something for you. And you're thinking, I remember Harry, let's see what he's doing. That's the connection we want to make with people in school right now. So mm -hmm. we're doing that with the composers on the, on, the, on the statewide level, but because of the Eastman Hansen Institute, uh, Don Hansberg has been great working with Dean mm -hmm. Jamal Rossi. We've gotten some funding to hire students, obviously very advanced students at Eastman, and, and say, hey, this is really hard piece that the professionals don't have time for. Can you do it? <laughs> 
Um, no, no, that's not why we do it at all. But uh, it does free us a little bit, actually, in terms of the nitty gritty, because we would often have to say, okay, this great piece, we think it's really deserving, but it's for like saxophone quartet. And that's great. We have that at least in stage, incredible saxophone program. But for us, then that would sort of mm -hmm. handicap us in programming wise, like, okay, what else is there for saxophone? And there's obviously a lot, but working through the Eastman Hansen Institute and the chamber um, department at Eastman, we're able to get great grad students and then make these connections with younger composers. So it works two ways, I think. But sometimes mm -hmm. the, the college level composers and the college students can meet that way. But also when you have some of the younger, like the high school composers, it's a teaching thing for them because a lot of the grad mm -hmm. students at Eastman are really going to help these kids and say, that's yeah. a great idea, but you need to refine it by doing this and this yeah. and this. So, so I, think, um, I think that's a really big thing for us in terms of, I'm sorry, we sort of spun away from programming. It's sort of the programming puzzle, right? So you want to make sure you're looking to the future, right? You're always looking to say, who's going to take over mm -hmm. when we're gone? Who's going to be the next generation of people coming up? What kinds of kind of institutional traditions can we instill so that even when we are gone, I, I, you know, the composer competition started before us and it will continue after. The Hansen Institute with Eastman students taking part in it is something that began with us and will continue after we're gone. Also about this idea of having, you know, students and young composers, about why we have the students play these works instead of the professionals. Another thing is just time, mm -hmm. right? And these new works, really any new work, demands time because no players can come to the rehearsal mm -hmm. and say, don't worry, I listened to the recording. Maybe they get a MIDI file, you know? <laughs> um, but just the idea that we're right. then able to really give these works the time that they deserve and kind of that workshop experience mm -hmm. that helps, like Eric was saying, helps those composers develop. And maybe even the piece that's performed on the concert is a little different than the piece that originally showed up on the Stand. Yeah, I, I mean, this is mm -hmm. something that me and Blair as our duo, um, we've just recently done a big commissioning program, but just taking a piece of music and sitting a composer down going, okay, this is why this doesn't perhaps work on the instrument so well. This is why it's difficult. Can we try this way? Is this the same uh, or a similar effect that you're looking for is something that's so valuable and it means that the composers aren't going to be terrified of writing for certain instruments or setups going forward so that's yeah something that is so important and also making the connection between uh, students and professionals is i think very important for up-and-coming performers as they come in. I, I think so. And it's an interesting line that you're, that you're going down, which you could apply a lot to when you look back at history and you look at female composers that were marginalized or people of color that were marginalized. Mm -hmm. So people look at their music and they go, well, it's not that refined. And I'm thinking, how could it be refined? They weren't given the option to. Never no, absolutely. An opportunity. And so that's what we're trying to say is like, give the opportunity to everybody, create ways, a great word you said, workshopping. Or Julian said workshopping. And that's something that I think you know, you look at Beethoven and how many times did he revise his symphonies, right? Constantly oh, yeah. Revising. So mm -hmm. someone like Amy Beach, who was got, got married to a wealthy doctor who said, you're great. You're you gonna can play once a year. Once a year. Oh, 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 lucky you. Uh, you can play once a year. Right. And these yeah. workshopping opportunities are, I think, where we all grow as performers. I mean, so much of the composing now is done with a computer. And I think there's a little bit lost in that. I remember talking it to... Alan Sean, who's a wonderful um, composer and teacher, wrote a concerto for Juliana and I actually. He, um, he studied with Nadia 
uh, Boulanger. Not a concerto for us together. No, that no, would no, be no. lovely. That would be concerto for him. Be like a concerto. Anyway, he said how when he went and studied with her, she made all the composers sit down and sing. They would sing their music. They would sing that together so to know lovely. that feeling of yeah. does it work? Yeah. Does your music work? Like, can you physically do that on the harp yeah. or the voice <laughs> or the bassoon? It's a really important thing mm -hmm. that tends to get a little bit lost when people are working with MIDI files yeah. and their computers. And I think it's a it's a great thing anytime we can get people together. And yeah, that's that's sort of the challenge. I think we've got a very open mind audience in Rochester in general. Mm -hmm. And the Society for Chamber Music mm -hmm. is really open. So we'll throw some things at them that um, may not stick, but they'll keep coming back for mm -hmm. more, which is great. Absolutely. And I also think it elevates these young composers. You know, they're performing on a series. And we've had composers mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe they won the high school competition and now they're out of state at college. And they will make a point of coming to the concert yeah. and being sure they can be there. Mm -hmm. So just like that experience for them. And I'm thinking also a similar way that maybe, you know, young conductors don't always have access to an orchestra to practice on. But young composers have this same difficulty. They have all this music going in their minds, but how frequently do they get this opportunity to really flesh it out? Yeah, especially as conductors, well, conductors and composers, when you have the ensemble, that is your instrument. Yeah. You have all these people to, but it's difficult to get all these people in a room together. And, and I certainly appreciate that that is part of uh, what you do. So you present five different concerts per season. When you're developing each of these seasons, what comes first, the repertoire or the chamber ensembles that you want to develop? I would say the repertoire, definitely. Yeah. Um, and we have had seasons where we tried to develop a theme for the entire season. We didn't actually find that to be um, unsuccessful by any means, but it didn't seem to be something that was so magnetic for people that we felt we needed to continue that. Mm -hmm. You know, with five concerts spread out between September and May, they're far enough apart that it didn't seem to matter if we linked each concert. More important was the link within a concert. Mm -hmm. And so I think what often happens for us is we've got sort of this bucket list of pieces that we wanna make sure that we program. We never can get through all of them each year. So that list <laughs> keeps getting longer and longer. So we'll pick sort of a central piece on a concert and hopefully it's got a diversity of players and instruments um, that we can then spin off from there. So the relationships on the programming side may be, um, ah, here was, someone whose music was influenced by this composer or this performer who's going to play on the series premiered a piece by this composer you know so it, it the connection comes from anyone mm -hmm. I mean, interestingly i would say the majority of the pieces that we make out sort of our anchor pieces are often that ones that are unfamiliar so we generally will try and find the unfamiliar one and be like this mm -hmm. needs to be heard and then we kind of go now what can we lure them in with ah mendelssohn okay great so that and make sure the instrumentation works. So I think that's kind of a big thing in terms of looking at the season as a whole. You get, you get, you can get into yeah. the trap of thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if we could weave this thread through the whole thing? But the audience doesn't really feel that. You give yourself a programming medal that means nothing at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So and sometimes you can, you can actually sort of handcuff yourself to a, to a certain thing that isn't always such a great idea. So 
I think within the context, and this very much drilled into us when we did survey monkey reviews of our audience, where they would say, hey, we don't care about the entire theme in the season. <laughs> but mm -hmm. we love that every concert needs to have some kind of connection theme, you know, that we can sort of talk about it afterwards and, you know, it becomes much more important. I mean, really, when you think about how we live our lives right now, we're so myopic in terms of like what's happening today. And another thing with programming too, we've tried a little bit to blur the lines with genres. You know, Juliana has this fantastic jazz background. So I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she, um, actually her brother is staying with us right now. They, and uh, he's an incredible jazz musician, has a big band and uh, writes and composes for everybody around the country. So there's a great jazz heritage in her family. As soon as we started getting our hands on the programming, we're like, well, how can we, how can we take advantage of that? So we've you know, worked with you know, some composers getting more jazz into the mix. We're going further and further down that path. One of our concerts has become basically this Baroque and blue concert, which is great. I mean, mm -hmm. just because the relationship between the two worlds is so- Improvisation. From improvisation, right, yeah. from contrapuntal writing. I mean, the Baroque music is as close to jazz as anything, which is why so many jazz musicians, you know, you ask them who their favorite composer is like mm -hmm. Monk and Bach. It's a great connection to make also for a lot of our folks that maybe are really interested in Baroque music. And for them, you know, jazz is a little stretch. You put it together and they, they really have a fun time. They have mm -hmm. a fun time at the concert. Yeah, and I have to say, we got such a positive response we may have done that our very first year. Mm -hmm. And we got such a positive response that that has actually been a constant that it's on every season. We've got a broken blue and people are always saying, well, what are you going to do next year for broken blue? So we found something they love. So with regards to the people that play with you, do you have a pretty consistent roster of players uh, or does it rotate? Does it just depend on who's available at any particular time. Again, really interesting right now to look back over the 44 year history of the society and see what each artistic director or pair, mainly was pairs, would, what would they do? And we noticed for some of them, they stuck very consistently to-, to mm, Maybe a, a, a group, group of 15 or 20 yeah. musicians okay. that you're seeing popping up over like five or six years, like yeah. all the time. Interestingly, and I won't name names, when we, started there were some musicians that we reached out to who've been long time in the community who said oh my gosh thank you so much i haven't played with the society for 10 20 years you know so there's always a shuffling but i think it's been very important to us to depart from that idea mm -hmm. of these are the 20 people that play in fact yeah. that's one of our um kind of jenga puzzles as we're putting a season together we're looking at like okay well i have um, six viola spots, mm -hmm. I, I, I want to get six violas, you know, because it can be very easy to be like, oh, these are the people, yes, great, but we really try and spread it out. And one of the things that can become difficult is you set your programs in your mind and you think of who you want to kind of pair together. Then you start asking people about dates. <laughs> well, so-and-so isn't available here, but so-and-so isn't available here. And then it all gets mixed up. It, it always works out in the end. And we have to remind ourselves that all the time. And every year, this may be the year that we really embrace it. Every year we're reminded of Don Hunsberger's sage advice, which I know that he had to do as an educator. He says, program the music. Mm -hmm. You will find the performers. Yep. It's very true. I mean, it's, it's an obvious sentiment, but I think it's easy to get stuck in. But mm -hmm. we need these people to play this concert when really you've got great music, you know you have a plethora of great performers, you will work it out. 
I know I alluded to this a little earlier, but in addition to running this organization, both of you are the um, power couple of the Rochester <laughs> Philharmonic Orchestra. And you do also both teach. Uh, Juliana, I know you're at uh, Eastman. Eric, am I right in thinking you're at Roberts Wesleyan? Yep. Yep. So how do you balance all of these things as well as having a young family and still find time to practice? I'm sorry, uh, what was that? Practice. practice. Wait, I'm going to Google that. Practice, <laughs> <laughs> what is this strange one? <laughs> I, uh, it's, it's funny. I mean, I'll go back to like my teacher, uh, Richard Woodhams, would push his students to really take their technique as far as possible. And I remember like memorizing, transposing, doing stuff that you would never have to do as an oboe player. Well, I was a little older, I had the goal to ask him, like, why, why are you making me do this? Why are you torturing us with this stuff? We're never gonna use it. And he's like, well, so how much do you practice now in college? And I'm like, I'm practicing like five hours a day. It's killing me and I'm memorizing. I've got this music in my head. I work at a restaurant, I'm going crazy. But his big point was push yourself when you're young to extend your technique. Because if you're very, very lucky, if you're one of the very few lucky people who get to do this, and you want to have a family, and maybe you want to have a chamber thing on the side, you don't have time. You do not have time to woodshed your parts. You have to be able to, the music is dropped on the stand, and you have to be able to play it. And you know, have to be able to win. Right. And I think a lot of the time, you know, in, in school, we get this idea that you're going to have eight weeks to prepare a model symphony, but you don't have that reality. So you have to just, you got to push your technique, I think, when you're young as far as you can, sort of in an insane way, so that if you are lucky and get a really good, position which offers you opportunities that you that you don't get bogged down by practicing as an oboe player just specifically I have so much read making right Blair knows as well mm -hmm, we have mm -hmm. so much of our time is just sitting alone in a room making reads right so to say <clears throat> well now I'm gonna have to practice two hours on top of the two hours I already put in that means that I'm like working from 11 till 4 in the morning and I, mm -hmm. I can't do that anymore no. so <laughs> I think that's the balance for me was to push pretty hard early on and now I'm not sure how we do it all. I mean, there are days where when Juliana was teaching and playing, and I don't know. I mean, now that we've had this big pause in society and life, it's going to be really hard to go back to that life, I think. It's, I, I can't get my head around how I we mean, do you it. think about all that you were doing daily before this great pause, if we will. Mm -hmm. I do think one silver lining it's provided us I mean, a huge one is just the uninterrupted family time. So we have a six-year-old daughter and a nine-month-old daughter, and I'm having time with the baby that I definitely wouldn't have had as much of if we were in our regular schedules. Um, but I think for all of us, it does give you a moment to step back and think, how much do I want to let back in? Mm. You know, what are the really important things that now that I've had time to step back, that are still important that I would welcome back into my life. And I hope, and I think that we'll all kind of streamline our priorities a little better. I sometimes feel that the way we get through it is just, you do the thing that you're doing. Sometimes if you zoom out too much, it can be overwhelming, but, and we have had that. We would have weeks where we'd look at a really busy RPO week, a really busy teaching week, and oh my gosh, there's an SCMR concert that we're both playing. I will say over the years, now that we have kids, we most often do not play on the same concert chamber-wise, which is a bummer because we love to play together, but it just makes our lives easier if we don't. One day, wait, wait till they're a bit older and then you get to play chamber music together again. <laughs> Thinking back to kind of the general thing that we, we, we're, we're learning and we have learned, 
we're lucky in that we have a really great board at SCMR behind us. Mm -hmm. So do a lot. Uh, we have a wonderful person, Meg Burton-Tidman, who's director of operations up here, and she's great. So, you know, over the years, you know, when you come into something, you want to really own it and direct things, and you really want to do everything. And I think we've learned to let things organically happen a bit more. And they get taken care of. They will get taken care of. And it's hard. And the two of you are such dynamos, I think. That'll be something that you'll, you'll learn over time when you get more and more involved in organizations to say, this is how I want it to happen and management style and then quite a step away. Sometimes when we step away from things, better things happen. Mm -hmm. You know, you learn that too, that like, okay, that was a good idea, but somebody, if I gave them ownership, they're thinking differently and better and they can make it a little bit, they tweak yeah. the idea, they roll it out better than you would. So micromanaging feels like, oh, got to do it, got to do it, got to change the world and do it right. Sometimes it's good to let it happen. And I think also within the RPO too, you know, when we were younger, we were on all the committees, we were doing all the stuff. Mm. And it's amazing <laughs> when kids happen and other people get on the committees and the world generally keeps kept, spinning. Kept spinning. It's, yeah. It still goes. <laughs> things still work. It's great. Right, but things still work and, and good ideas come about. New, new blood comes into the orchestra and they take over and they do some really good things. And then we're kind of like, the oldies who can be like, hey, I remember doing that. Here's the thing you got to watch out for. And we try and help them, you know, navigate some of the financial meetings and all that kind of stuff that we we're talking about. Right. So I think that's a big thing for us in terms of how we get through. We've gotten a little bit smarter in terms of trying to let let things happen. And yeah, work smarter, not harder. Yeah. How do you two divide up the organization runnings, the administrative tasks, and how is it working with one another? Well, I think um, we're definitely the first married couple mm -hmm. to be the artistic directors for SCMR. So that was a new, a new thing for them. I could see how it would be, you know, refreshing and fun to work with just a colleague and a friend, um, get together for a coffee or call each other up and figure it out. We do have the benefit of the kids go to sleep. We're night owls. It's 1030. Okay, well, let's knock out some programming. So for us, um, I, I would say, I think, now Eric's going to get to answer this too. I think the benefits <laughs> far outweigh the risks. <laughs> and um, for us, because we can sort of like chip away at it a little bit at a time. Yeah. I will say that because my teaching side of things at Eastman is so busy as my second extra job or really like a co-job to the RPO. Mm -hmm. um, I would say Eric takes on the email writing, the phone calls. The, so I, I sort of get the joy of the artistic discussions and thought process. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to go make a doodle poll to figure out what <laughs> first. So for yep. me, it's great. And it's a shame, really, because she's much a much better writer than I am. But I end up doing mm. a lot of that. Yeah, um, and then I and then I edit. She'll clean it up, you know. <laughs> it's okay. You get to do the proofreading. There you go. That's right. So that's how we do it. And I think the advantage of living together is a disadvantage, right? In that we we talk so much, and we can get sort of focused on an idea. And sometimes we need someone to say, "Ah, it's not really going to work." We eventually do do that. But then the advantage is when we do need to pivot and shift the idea of the program or the personnel. We're already on the same page. We're on the same page, and we're we're doing that like at two o'clock in the morning, or eight o'clock in the morning, or you know when we're putting the kids to sleep, we're talking about stuff. So, yeah. you know, it's an advantage, just advantage, right? Like so, sometimes mm -hmm. we get a little myopic, and then other times it's incredibly productive because we have such an easy communication, being married and being really good friends and liking each other. So we 
We really do. Oh, that's oh. handy. That's really nice. <laughs> hey, I've said it this year. Done. Okay. <laughs> that he can still say it in quarantine. I think it's. Yeah, that's that, that's, that's a, a test that right is there. true love. <laughs> so I think it's fun for us. I think it's it's probably a little bit of a novelty for the audience, you know, thinking, oh, these guys are married and isn't that cute? And, but um, I do think it helps with programming, like functioning um, and then dividing the task. She does a lot of the, the programming. So I do a lot of communications with Meg and with the board. Sometimes yeah. I think they wonder if Juliana is doing anything, but she really is. Sometimes just to be nice, he signs my name on the email. Very kind. <laughs> she, really is, she really is a puppet master and I'm just writing the emails, you know. Oh, goodness. Obviously, we've mentioned your bread and butter money comes from Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. And that is uh, a, a little up in the air. What is going on with our season going forward? So something we've mentioned in other previous episodes of this podcast is this is the time for chamber music. So how do you think uh, SCMR is going to maybe mold and change, uh, if at all, you know, for what for what it's worth, we have been approached by the RPO because of our work with SCMR. So mm. it actually has been helpful for us with lending our expertise or database or whatever to this other organization to help a little bit and say, well, here's what we found has worked. And the advantage, again, was we were using a lot of RPO and Eastman faculty. So a lot of the programs we've done here are replicable for the RPO during this time. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of information sharing behind the scenes that's going, you know, they're still in charge. They're going to pick and choose what they want, but at least they can look at what we've done. And we can say, this is what worked or maybe didn't work. Um, and that's been really helpful. You know, we're looking at creative ways of the RPO. So we're kind of putting our SEMR hats into the RPO's knowledge box. Yeah. And say, here's <laughs> some things that we've looked into that might be applicable and check them out. They still are going to do all the work. I mean, that, that's, that's, and they're, they're doing great. It's just, it's quicksand, right? So every time you make yeah. a plan, you sink right in and things can change that are so beyond your control. It can lead, I think, to uh, uh, paralysis, right? And then you have this horrible in inertia to overcome, to move forward again. You get knocked down with your plan and then it just gets harder and harder. And we're seeing this across the country with symphony boards and management. A few have just given up really quickly. But I'm proud to say we just did a survey of, of sort of peer orchestras like Buffalo, Florida, Grand Rapids. They're all moving ahead. So it's showing a lot mm -hmm. of fight in the arts community of orchestras that, as you said, the elephant in the room is you can't do what you do anymore. You've got to change it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're finding ways to go ahead, showing incredible chutzpah with very little backing mm -hmm. from the federal or local governments. Just moving ahead and trying to find ways to a, keep people employed, keep the staff intact, and know that the sun will come up at some point where we're back to work and we need to be there. We need to be there for our community. So for us, I mean, I think we are lucky. Chamber music is so much more flexible. We don't have a roster that we have to stick to. We can have different people. Mm -hmm. We can really do whatever we want. The cost is low. The streaming stuff has gotten so good, right? So it's getting way, mm -hmm. way better. Dichotomy right now between wanting to be in the cutting edge and wanting to be the risk takers and the innovators, right? And getting changed, let's do it in our backyard and on the porch and out of a helicopter. It's really great. <laughs> really fun. And oh, the helicopter oh, string yeah. quartet, my yeah. favorite. I looked into that. It's really expensive. <laughs> so I think that, the, and it's great, right? That's really great. And I think it's good. And what it's helping do is pushing orchestras that I think have been quite stuck in their way to think differently and that that i think will be you know never let a crisis go without its benefit right there will be a great thing that happens there yeah having something that's a hybrid i think is yes 
I hope going to just open up more audiences to listening to classical music or jazz Mm -hmm. or any type of music in general, because you're breaking down the barrier of perhaps they don't have transport or they can't go on their own or something like that. It Mm -hmm. means that more people are going to be able to experience this music. And then those who are able to and want to come in person, by all means, that's really great. Mm -hmm. It's nice playing for an audience. There there is true to what you're saying there, the very austere approach that, you know, when people come to a concert and they feel the fourth wall with the audience, all that stuff, right? And, And in a way this breaks it down, especially if they're getting to know Blair and Rosie this way and they go wow these two are so fun and they're great and they're young and they're full of energy <laughs> so when they come to the concert they know you that way <clears throat> even though you look very beautiful in a dress playing on the stage it's all very grand and in a lot of ways that's intimidating for people but now that they've got to know you this way they've gotten to know you as a people they will see you that way and they'll feel that, that they'll feel that no I can go and watch that concert it's great so I think that's a really great benefit and also with orchestras going more chamber music there's so many great players that sit in our section and never get highlighted, right? They do the hard Very work true. and they just, they never get highlighted. People think that they're these robot musicians, like like orchestral trained musicians. They're not, they're chamber musicians and they're yeah. great. And that's something they would never get the opportunity to do in the orchestra, right? I mean, they'd mm-hmm. get maybe like a, a, a duet with the principal and someone would be like, oh, that sounds okay. And then they move on, so. But they trained yeah. like we all trained. Yep. So so that just goes back to like our roster of musicians. However big we can make that circle, like we want our tent Mm -hmm. big enough for everyone to be in it. Whether you're going to be in it, you know, every single year, probably not because we, how many musicians we probably use, I want to say our goal um, for programming is usually our limit is like 32, 30 or 32 musicians. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we really hope that we're going to use 30 or 32 different people. Um, But over a five-year span, I hope we're going to use 50 or 60 different people, you know? I think that's really, really crucial. And the other thing about programming right now is under under promise and over deliver a little bit you know and i think that's, <laughs> that's going to make people feel good right it'll keep it'll get people's foot in the door it will then push them through and go okay this is my seat i'm very comfortable that's and, right and also it'll make people feel good when things are happening that they can count on yes so that about wraps up all we have time for today thank you so so much to eric and juliana for the Society for Chamber Music in Rochester for giving us your time today and having such an incredibly sparkling conversation with us. Uh, We hope that we get to see you in person at some point. That would be really nice. And uh, all of your links, social medias, everything will be down in the show notes. And everyone in Rochester uh, and further afield for for the hybrid virtual concerts, please do check out this incredible, incredible organization. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, 
Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Sergei Prokofiev and performed by members of the Society for Chamber Music in Rochester. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. Thank you.